know, it was last Sunday that we looked at uh, Jesus' command to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Uh, Today we'll see even more of how Jesus has loved us. Uh, We will look at his saving initiative to rescue cowardly disciples like Peter, turn them into bold followers for his mission, and then bring them into his presence and glory. In fact, I don't think that this, uh, that this text could actually come to this congregation at a more appropriate time. And let me tell you why. You know, we've been striving to grow as a church in our efforts in evangelism. And uh, whether, you know, whether that's sharing with coworkers, uh, en- engaging people in our neighborhoods, uh, participating in the, in the Saturday morning outreach with the Dan's leading, uh, some of you, uh, as you've been laying hold of this opportunity to speak the truth in the lives of others, some of you have, have begun voicing fears that you struggle against in these encounters. Uh, going public with the gospel in order to make disciples has brought you face to face with fears you didn't know you had. It's tested your, your confidence in Christ. Uh, you know, even some of my own most confident, in some of my own most confident uh, moments of preaching the gospel to others, there, there's still this, these inner doubts that rise. I was about two months ago sharing with a fairly large, intimidating fellow about Jesus and somewhere along the way, I just told this guy over the table, you know, you put a gun to my head and I'm choosing Christ. And something inside went, uh, you sure about that? <laughs> I hope this guy's not packing, you know. And I'm finding myself arguing these fears, these inside while I'm talking to people. Feel the inner weaknesses rise, the the doubt troubling my soul. Also, uh, many of you are very aware of of multiple things happening in our culture and with our own government that I believe will eventually test the sincerity of of your devotion to Jesus Christ. Just a few weeks ago, our religious liberty was nearly called into question when the Supreme Court judged uh, 5-4, ruled 5-4, only 5-4, in favor of Hobby Lobby. Or uh, think of all of the repeated and and gradually more influential attempts in our culture to to redefine marriage uh, and welcome homosexual behavior, to, to challenge the Bible's ethics on human life and sexuality. And as it all continues to unravel, we're reminded of those cultures who've walked similar trajectories before us, such as Canada, such as England. And we hear the stories of pastors being arrested for hate speech, for calling sin, sin. When things like this in our culture confront our Christian worldview such that we start teasing out the consequences of what it means to be devoted to Jesus. We start actually counting the cost. 
it forces us to evaluate our confidence in Christ, to check how firm our, our grip on him really is. And then we read the headlines about ISIS giving an ultimatum to Christians in Mosul, Iraq. Convert to Islam or die. You follow our way or you lose your head. And you realize these are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are one with them in the blessings and in the spread of the gospel. And the only reason you're not receiving the same sorts of threats is the sheer mercy of God. But your mind at least wonders as you're identifying with them in your prayers. You at least wonder, where would I get the strength to endure such pressure and persecution? That's the question that went through my mind when I sat down with a brother in Central Asia last January and watched him, through tears, ask us how he's supposed to follow Jesus when he's the only Christian in a city of 200,000 Muslims. The same questions ran through my mind again this past Wednesday when I was Skyping with another brother in South Asia. And he's got new converts asking him whether they should get their government ID changed once they convert to Christianity. Right? How, would you like, how, how would you cling to Christ? You walk up to the government officials and you say, uh, my ID says, Muslim, I'm now following Jesus. I need it changed. I have a new identity. What do you what do you do when, when you're facing that kind of trouble? So whether these questions rise in, in our own soul as we live out our faith here, or they rise from what we see happening in other contexts, we need we need a word from Jesus Himself to help us endure. And, and we need to learn how Jesus strengthens cowards and, and makes them bold for his mission. And that's what we get with Jesus' interaction with Peter here. So I want to begin reading in that light in verse 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Father in heaven, I pray that you would use these words here to give us great courage and zeal in the Lord as we carry on your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Three truths we need to cling to in this text if we're going to stand firm in the face of trouble. Number one. The power to follow Jesus comes from Jesus and what he accomplishes for you. The power to follow Jesus comes from Jesus and what he accomplishes 
for you. This is what we need to remember. The power doesn't come from within you. It comes from outside you. It's found only in the person and work of Jesus. I get this from from Jesus' interaction with Peter in verses 36 to 38. Peter asks Jesus, because of something Jesus said just a bit earlier, where are you going? And Jesus answers him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. This is a profound answer, and it tells us where the strength to follow Jesus actually comes from, and it's not from within us. Peter tell, uh, Jesus tells Peter straight up that Peter lacks the ability to follow Jesus at this point. Now, the reason for this is that Jesus has a very unique work to carry out that nobody else can accomplish. Uh, He will die on the cross, and that cross will also become his pathway back to glory with the Father. That's what Jesus means by going away here. He's going away to the Father, but first through the cross. Because he is God, because he is without sin, only Jesus could take the world's sins Go to the cross, absorb God's wrath, swallow the grave, and then rise victorious for his people into glory. Peter cannot follow Jesus in that sense. Peter, of course, doesn't understand what Jesus means by all this, but he definitely thinks he's got what it takes to follow Jesus right then and there. So he says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now we could dismiss Peter's words as insincere. I mean, after all, they're in the upper room. It's pretty peaceful, quiet, no soldiers. Anybody can be bold in that kind of setting. But I think Peter's remarks are actually more sincere. Later on, when they're in the garden and all the soldiers actually come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? Takes out his sword, cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. He seems like he's ready to die. For Jesus. So his words are sincere. They're just totally misguided and self-centered. At this point, Peter will lay down his life for Jesus as long as Jesus fits Peter's mold of what a Savior should look like and do for him. See, the soldiers and some of the Jewish officers, when they come, they actually arrest Jesus and then take Jesus away. Later on, and it's at that point, Jesus, uh, Peter's boldness goes out the window. He's next seen in chapter 18, standing sheepishly in the courtyard around a fire, denying that he even knows Jesus three times over by those who are asking him. His boldness to follow Jesus was rooted in the wrong things. His confidence is independent of Jesus and self-centered. He's bold as long as things are going his way. He's bold as long as Jesus does what Peter thinks he ought to do. He's bold as long as Jesus' way doesn't involve a cross. And Jesus calls him on it even before the denial happens. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow... Till you have denied me three times. In other words, you sound bold, Peter. But that boldness isn't the result of you resting in me for who I really am. 
That boldness isn't drawing from who I really am and what I'm about to do for you. The truth is that you're not ready to take up a cross and follow me on the Calvary Road. You may be ready to give your life if it means you die like a warrior. But you're not ready to give up your life if it means you're hung up like a criminal. Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. And he calls him on the weakness of his soul. But the point of this interaction with Peter isn't simply to point out that Peter is weak. It's also to point out that Jesus is strong. Peter would uh, deny Jesus on the way to the cross. But Jesus would never deny Peter all the way through the cross. There's a point on the Calvary road where it just becomes too much. And when Peter will forsake Jesus... But there's never a point on the Calvary Road when Jesus will forsake Peter or any of his other true disciples. The promise of verse 36 stands as the result of the cross. I want you to listen to it again. Where I am going, this is verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, Peter. But, but this, this is, here's, the, here's the promise, but you will follow afterward. And the rest of the New Testament tells us Peter does just this. He follows Jesus. Once Jesus dies and he ascends into heaven back to glory, Peter follows Jesus just as Jesus promised. We see that play out in the book of Acts. And even Peter's letters exhort the church to to follow in the footsteps of Jesus' sufferings. Peter himself, uh, Jesus tells Peter himself at the end of... uh, Chapter 21, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go, Peter. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. So Peter follows, even 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This Peter is right in that. You rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. How did this Peter in John 13 become that Peter? In 1 Peter 4. How does Peter go from lacking the ability to follow Jesus to having the ability to follow Jesus? From from a place of denying Jesus to a place of dying like Jesus? The answer is Jesus. And what he accomplishes for Peter. I want us to look at the afterword. The afterword in verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. This afterward means everything for us. In this text. Because it shows that our power to follow Jesus isn't rooted in what we do for Jesus, but in what Jesus does for us. The afterword refers to all the saving results bound up with Jesus and his death and his exaltation. Where I'm going, meaning back to the Father, through the cross, you cannot follow me now, Peter. But once my work is finished and I'm seated at God's right hand, then you will follow You will follow afterward. 
So we've got massive realities bound up with Jesus and his work that once they're accomplished for Peter, will make Peter a different sort of person. Make Peter a different sort of man, a different kind of disciple who's drawing his strength not from within himself, but from Jesus as Jesus really is. Let me tell you what some of those things are specifically that are bound up with this uh, word afterwards. You see, John expects us to read his gospel multiple times over, again and again and again and again. And every time we're reading it, we're getting more and more picture of what's bound up with these little terms here and there. Here's some things specifically. I'll give you a few. John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says this about Jesus. When Jesus dies on the cross, he will suffer the wrath of God for Peter and then take away all his sins, including his sinful, cowardly denials of Jesus. You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 8, the first group of sinners that is cast into the lake of fire are the cowardly. The second group are the faithless. That's very sobering. But if you are Jesus' disciple... Jesus died to take away your cowardice and absorb in his body the fire you deserved for that cowardice. That's good news if you believe in Jesus this morning. You will not suffer punishment for your cowardice on the last day because Jesus suffered it for you and took it all away in his body on the cross. More than that, Listen to John 8, 34 to 36. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So think of your cowardice. Think of your faithlessness. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, that's Jesus, sets you free, meaning free from your sin, the very sin keeping you out of God's house, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here's something else that happens when Jesus dies on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin for everybody who trusts in him, whether that's Peter or you. And when you're united to Jesus by faith, cowardice no longer rules you. Faithlessness no longer rules over you, consumes you, controls you. Jesus has set you free from it. He has overcome it for you in the cross. And this is remarkable grace. Because that's not what Jesus told the Jews who were despising him in chapter 8. He tells them, he's using the same language there in chapter 8, verse 21. I'm going away and where I'm going you cannot come and you will die in your sins. That's what he tells everybody who's rejecting him. You will die in your sins. That's not what he tells Peter. I'm going away. You will follow afterwards. What's the difference? From dying, how do you go from Jesus is going away, I cannot come, and therefore I'm going to die in my sins, or Peter, I'm going away, you're going to follow me afterwards. You're not going to die in your sins. The difference is that Jesus has opened Peter's eyes by grace. So that he embraces Jesus by faith. 
he will not die in his sins because Jesus has overcome its power for Peter. He will follow Jesus. Therefore, he will not die in his sins. Here's something else he does. This this is John 12. We, We talked about this a while back. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, Jesus is talking about himself, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what is the fruit that we talked about that is a result of Jesus' death? The fruit is this. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The fruit of Jesus' death is a people who are able to hate their lives in this world. The world no longer has a grip on them to keep them here. They want to be with him, with Jesus. Even if it means, even if it costs them their life. So Jesus' death also liberates our souls from the world's attraction so that it no longer holds us back from following Jesus at all costs. And one more thing. Once Jesus dies and the Father raises Jesus back to glory with him, what does he, who does he send? He sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only applies Jesus' cross to his disciples so that they experience the forgiveness of their sins, the the removal of their guilt, the the power of sin broken, the power of the world broken, the power of Satan broken over their lives. But that spirit also empowers his followers to embrace the way of the cross. That's what chapters 14 to 16 are about. And all these things are bound up with what Jesus means by afterward. Peter can't do what only Jesus can do, but what only Jesus can do enables Peter to do what he's supposed to do. Jesus is saying, you will follow afterward, Peter, because guilt will no longer weigh you down. I will remove it. Because sin will no longer control you. I will set you free. Because the world will no longer have you. I will overcome it. Because the Spirit will fill you with power and I will send him to help you. If Jesus is your life this morning, then that's true of you too. In every circumstance you find yourself, you must remember that what Jesus has done for you. When the trials come, when the persecution begins, when the doubts rise, when the troubles cloud your soul, you must remember that your strength to endure is not found inside you. It's found in the person of Jesus alone and what he's accomplished for you. You know, Matthew tells us something very similar to John uh, in Matthew 10 when when Jesus sends out the sends out his disciples and tells them I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves right they're going to deliver you over to courts flog you in their synagogues dragged before governors and kings to bear witness to the gospel and he says this when they deliver you over do not be anxious How you are to speak, what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Your confidence in the midst of trouble and persecution must rest in Jesus and what he will supply and what he's done for you. That brings us to our our second truth to hold on to. Jesus must remain the object of our faith in the midst of trouble. 
Jesus must remain the object of our faith in the midst of trouble. He says it very plainly in in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. His words don't come to a bunch of disciples who are sort of cool and calm about the way things are. His words come to disciples who are who have inner turmoil about what's going on. They're confused. The Jews want to kill their master. Judas just walked out. Jesus is telling us he's going away. They just found out Peter's going to deny him three times. Their souls are troubled. But here's where they must set the entirety of their trust. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is a remarkable statement by Jesus, especially if you think about who he's saying it to and when he's saying it to them. He's talking to Jews. The Bible, their Bibles have told them that there is but one God, Yahweh, and he's revealed himself through many mighty deeds. He sent the terrible plagues on Egypt when Pharaoh said no. He delivered his people from Egypt by splitting the Red Sea. He fed his people miraculously with manna and led them through the wilderness in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He held back the Jordan River. He defeated army after army after army after army. He raises up kings to punish and then tears down their thrones to prove his sovereignty and show his covenant love for Israel. And now Jesus is telling these Jews to believe in God and also in him while he's on the way to the cross as a slave. I mean, you can see the disciples. Okay, God, Exodus, yeah, lots of power. You're going to the cross? Believe in you like like we believe in, in him You wiped out an army with one angel? I mean, these Romans, you can take them out. Let's go. What do you mean? On top of that, their own Bibles tell them, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. You want want us to follow a cursed man? Hmm. You want us to believe in, in you? Jesus is still trying to help them see that God's mightiest act of salvation was still to come. His mightiest act of salvation, of all the other things, all of which, all of these are pointing to one that's mightier. That act of salvation was now unfolding right before their eyes, but in a way they didn't expect it to. God had come down in the person of his son to take the form of a slave and live courageously faithful to the father at every point his people had failed to, even when it meant dying a cursed death for sins that were not his own, but for their sins. To believe in Jesus was simultaneously to believe in the God of Israel. Not just because Jesus accomplished the work of God, 
He did do that. But because Jesus accomplished the work of God as God. He is the supreme revelation of who God is because in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. He is fully God and fully man that makes him unique and therefore the necessary object of our faith. We're going to talk about more about that next week. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Our faith can be in nothing else except Jesus, because Jesus is the one and the only eternal God. So we must calm our hearts in the midst of trouble by trusting in Him. We cannot bank on our own strength, our own financial security, our own ability to tolerate pain. You know, we do this when we think about, when we hear about our brothers and sisters being tortured. I bet I could handle that, but not that. Our boldness cannot be in our own cleverness to control this or that trial. We will not find strength through self-realization, very popular nowadays, discovering some power inside that was always hiding, you just never knew about it. We can't just pump up our spiritual life with louder music, a bit of caffeine, and a self-pep rally in the car. True comfort and boldness in the midst of trouble comes only by running into the arms of Jesus, into to, to his person. For he is God Almighty who's come to save us. So, so the next time fear rises in you, when you're sharing the gospel, your soul is troubled by the trials of the day, or some suffering and confusion comes your way, rest your soul in Jesus. He is God, and there are, if he is God, and he is, there are no limitations to his power and no limitations to his provision for you in the midst of the trouble. If he sustains the universe by the word of his power, then he's upholding your little life, even with all of its trials. If he owns the earth's riches and is totally wise in all of their distribution, then he can meet all of your needs. He may not give you what you want. He will give you what you need and what is wise. If he has already forgiven your sins through his death, which is the biggest problem in the universe for you, if he's already done that, he can certainly deal with your fears. If he saved you for a mission, he will ensure you are equipped for that mission, lacking in nothing. If he's raised himself from the dead, you can be sure that he will make every provision for you to die with confidence in his resurrection power. So calm your soul in trouble by trusting in Jesus, rehearse these things with yourself while you're in the midst of trouble. You know, some of us try to deal with our fears simply by hiding them. If I just keep them at bay and pretend they're not there, that will make me strong. Or, or we hide them from God. We pretend like we can hide them from God. Or we hide them from one another. We want others to think that we're strong. We're like Peter. But that only shows us that we're not trusting in Christ to be our strength. The truth is that by nature, we're not strong in the way we need to be strong in order to follow Jesus. We might be strong in other ways, but not in the way we need to be. And Jesus knows this about us. 
He is God and therefore he is all-knowing. He sees your fears and doubts already just like Peter, just like he saw Peter's. And not a single doubt kept Jesus from leaving glory to die on the cross for all of them. So tell Jesus your fears. Tell Jesus your doubts. He already knows them. He already died for them. And he, as God, has the power and the infinite supply of grace to do something about them. So there's no need to hide our cowardly hearts behind anything, even behind excuses. Like evangelism could cause problems at work. Or taking this ethical stance might cost me my job. Aren't there some other things that are more urgent? People won't want to listen to me. I mean, they probably have already heard the gospel. These are just excuses behind which we we hide our fears. There's no need to hide fears. But there's every reason, knowing what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, there's every reason to confess them to him. And then lean upon him to give us strength. Jesus must be the object of our faith in the midst of trouble. Third and last truth for enduring trouble. Jesus promises an eternity in his presence when he comes again. So we've seen that Jesus has, has done, we've seen what he's done for his disciples through the cross. We've seen who he is, God Almighty, and now we see where he's taking us. He's, he, what he does here is he, he lifts the disciples' head off their present troubles, and then he points them to future glory. So look again in verse two, verses 2 to 3. <clears throat> in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And we've got to be careful here. Otherwise, our uh, finite minds and our materialistic hearts will uh, begin turning heaven into some dream house that's full of everything we would have loved on earth anyway. We hear house and rooms. Some translations have mansions. And we begin imagining things that aren't even close to the reality of the kingdom. We just be sure your Bible is informing what's bound up with these things. Jesus is simply using a metaphor to talk about heaven when he says God's house. He says there are many rooms or even better dwelling places. There are many dwelling places. And he says this simply because he's referring to heaven as A house, as his father's house. So his point isn't to get us fixed on the rooms and figuring out what all is bound up with the rooms. His point is to fix us on the fact that his going away will guarantee our future dwelling with God in Jesus' presence. See, we even make a mistake here. We have individual rooms that are limited by our finite minds and Jesus somewhere over here in another place. We've got to come out of our room to see. It just goes crazy. So the point is to get us fixed on the fact that our future dwelling 
is with God in Jesus' presence, and it's, it's unhindered. You are always there, unmediated presence. It will never be the case that a true disciple of Jesus finds himself without a place in the future kingdom. He will dwell with God in glory because of the work of Jesus. It's guaranteed. The point uh, that Dan made a few weeks ago from, uh, when he was preaching through uh, Habakkuk, that what makes heaven heaven is Jesus' presence there, this becomes really explicit right here. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, right? Where I am, there you may be also. It's not about the rooms. It's about dwelling in the presence of Jesus and not dwell at some distance from Jesus. He says, where I am, you may be also. Later on, Jesus will even pray that the whole goal of the Father sending the Son was that all of God's elect may be with Jesus to see his unmediated glory that God has given him because God loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's John 17, 24. And based on that text, what we get is that heaven is the divinely prepared dwelling place in which the eternal, omnipotent intensity of the Father's love for the Son goes public for His resurrected people's everlasting pleasure. That's what heaven is. Say that again. Heaven is the divinely prepared dwelling place where we will dwell with God. He's prepared it. In which the eternal, this love that the Father had for the Son, never had a beginning. Because neither the Son nor the Father had a beginning. In which this eternal, omnipotent intensity of the Father's love for the Son, right? They're both all person of the Father, person of the Son. They're all powerful. The intensity of the Father's love for the Son radiates forth, goes public for all of His Resurrected people's everlasting pleasure. That's where we're going. That's what Jesus is going away. His cross, his resurrection, his ascension. It guarantees that for all who follow him. So if he has endured the, the cross to secure your place in God's presence, it would be unthinkable and a contradiction to his character and a contradiction to his work that he not also bring you into his presence this way. It would be as unthinkable as a bridegroom who prepares a marriage feast for his bride and gets it all ready without ever bringing her to the table. If he has prepared you a feast at the cost of his life, if his whole mission is wrapped up in winning his bride for himself that she may be with him, he will bring her to eat. That's what this table is about this morning. He will bring you to eat in his presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not a single drop of his blood will be overlooked. All that his blood secured for your future, he will give you. If you're drawing from the power of his cross, if he alone is the object of your faith, then your future is bound up with him in his glory. And this truth also gives us strength in the midst of trouble. It means that there is no trouble in this life. No trouble in this life. You can go from criticism to cancer, 
no trouble in this life. That will thwart Jesus' purpose to bring you into his glorious presence. There is no militant Islamist group or oppressive government that can change your destiny if you belong to Jesus. They can threaten you. They can put you in jail. They can kill you. But they cannot undo Jesus' promise or keep you out of his presence. If he has prepared you a place, then he will come again and bring you into that place, even when that means giving you a new body to enjoy it. Or just think of how it applies to maybe even your evangelism efforts or your unpopular ethical stances in the public square. Right? Ephesians 5 tells us, expose the darkness. Go out and expose the darkness, things happen. Okay? This, is, this is how this truth applies. There's not a single word or attitude or rejection or job loss that can strip you from the riches of an eternity in God's presence. So what's there to be afraid of? What's there to be afraid of when you follow Jesus? What trouble threatens Jesus or what Jesus has done for us? There are none. So let's make Jesus our confidence every morning. And preach with all our might, Redeemer. Let's serve with all the zeal God gives us. And let's not let our personality types or our fears or our weaknesses become excuses for keeping quiet about the message of truth. The gospel of our salvation. And at the same time, for those of us who are more bold, let's remember the way Jesus handled Peter. Here. Jesus knew the feebleness of even his best disciple, and yet he never rejected him. Rather, he taught him. He restored him. He gave him all he needed to continue in the mission. So that should teach us as a church to be patient with weaker brothers and sisters in this area and watchful of any prideful attitudes as if such boldness in ourselves ever came from us in the first place. We can then take each other, whether we're strong or whether we're weak, to these three truths so that all of us together might grow together in our boldness in Christ. Our power to follow Jesus comes from Jesus and what he's done for us. Jesus must remain the object of our faith in the midst of trouble. And Jesus promises us an eternity in his presence when he comes again. The Lord's Supper reminds us of these three truths as well. It calls us to remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It calls us to believe in who Jesus is now, God our Redeemer. And it also teaches us to look where he's bringing us when we will eat this supper again with him in his kingdom. So let's eat it together in light of these things. Dale, you want to come lead us?